Welcome to Policy Speaking, a podcast from the Public Policy Forum. We focus on the ripples, waves, and tsunamis radiating from this extraordinary health and economic crisis and what can be done about them. Policy Speaking is hosted by Edward Greenspan, President and CEO of the Public Policy Forum and former Editor-in-Chief of The Globe and Mail. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or head over to ppforum.ca where you can also find PPF's research and writings. Enjoy the show. Hello, I'm Edward Greenspan. Welcome to Policy Speaking. As you know, we've started looking at the formerly known as future work, increasingly known as present of work challenges that all advanced economies face. Here at PPF, we've been thinking about the workplace and the future work for a while now. We recently held our second Brave New Work conference. It delved into basic questions about the part governments, employers, unions, learning institutions, and individuals must play in preparing us and themselves for the future work. The COVID-19 crisis has accelerated changes to work. And in a recent episode of Policy Speaking, we spoke with the Future Skills Center and Ryerson's Diversity Institute about how skills gaps and other barriers to work have been intensified by COVID-19 and some of the uh, initiatives to uh, do better in in regards to a future of work that's uh, fairer and accessible to people so that we don't run into the problem of people being left behind. I have Wendy and Pedro, Wendy Suke, founder and academic director of Ryerson's Diversity Institute, and Pedro Barada, the executive director of the Future Skills Center, back with us again, because the first conversation was so good, covered so much ground, but left so much ground to be covered that we uh, thought we would go again. So welcome back to Policy Speaking uh, to both of you. Thanks for having us back. So Petra, let me me start with you. As Executive Director of the Future Skills Center, you're talking to to employers, I think, on on a fairly regular basis. And I note that one of the Skills Next papers that uh, the Public Policy Forum has done in conjunction with both uh, the Diversity Institute and the Future Skills Center says that while there is no clear consensus on whether government or corporations should be responsible for upskilling and reskilling, many corporations are taking the lead. Now, that was written before the COVID-19 crisis and when the labor market was very tight. I'm wondering, in your consultations, do you see the same ardor to take uh, to take the lead? Well, we're seeing that uh, uh, business increasingly is uh, is seeing the need to do that. The the challenges are right in front of us in terms of displaced workforces and in terms of business models that remain uncertain. And in all of our conversations, we're seeing sectors that already have a history of significant training and investment in their um, in their workforces now beginning to think about what next and how technology can enable that. But we're also seeing other sectors where perhaps training and and the skilling agenda may not be as pervasive, uh, now looking for new solutions that can keep uh, their workforces anchored 
and that can also create some new platforms and opportunities for, for workers to be part of the conversation about how their industry is changing and have some access to emerging training and emerging jobs. I think when you look at, uh, at the evidence around uh, how employers, how businesses are providing those opportunities, we just did a survey with uh, Diversity Institute and Inveronics that, uh, again, showed that only half of employers are actually providing those training opportunities. And when you ask uh, workers or workforces uh, about the value of that training, overwhelmingly people say, yeah, this is like, this is really, really important. And actually learning on the job and learning from my peers is some of the, the, the best experiences I've had in terms of my own personal growth. So hopefully, and certainly what we're hearing is that there's a lot of interest in figuring out how is it that we can shore that up. And it's the role of employers to certainly lead that. And I think that there's definitely a public policy wraparound in uh, incentivizing that, uh, that kind of um, leadership, uh, providing resources uh, to allow for those beachheads to be built. That's certainly a lot of the work the Future Skills Center is now involved in, is, uh, is, is trying to support industries and sectors to um, build better labor market information, build digital platforms, and just ensure that there's broader engagement and that everybody's in the same conversation at the same time. Let me probe one of those points uh, a bit more deeply because you say certainly the responsibility of, of corporations, of uh, businesses, employers to lead that. The quote I read at the beginning from the report says there's no clear consensus on whether government or corporations uh, should be responsible. And our record of um, uh, so I want to know, like, where should various responsibilities lie? I don't want to create this as a dichotomy. I want it on a continuum because that's the reality of the world. But I think it's only fair for listeners to to know that Canada has a pretty bad record of training at the corporate record, that the OEC at the corporate level, that the OECD has us way, way down the charts of investing in training. So who should have what responsibility and and how do we make sure everyone acts on that responsibility? Wendy? Well, it, from my point of view, businesses are primarily focused on making money. But social, uh, corporate social responsibility is a factor in, that shapes their behavior. But most businesses really primarily interested in how to make more money. And I think there's really good evidence that investing in upskilling and partnering with organizations, some have been mentioned, uh, groups like Empower, but also post-secondary institutions and so on, to make sure that there is a pathway to employment is in their best interests. And I think that one of the things we need to do more of is really uh, focus on the return on investment that's associated with upskilling and with building pathways for for um, diverse employees. I mean, there's lots of really good work that shows, for instance, that lots of really good work that shows that people with disabilities are um, have higher, have lower turnover rates and, and in spite of stereotypes and expectations actually make extremely good employees. So it, we've seen on the diversity front that you can you can demonstrate the so-called business case, but I think we have to do the same thing with upskilling. I mean, large, successful corporations around the world, AT&T comes to mind, but big consulting firms, uh, IBM, the banks, and so on, where their, their bread and butter is, is basically a function of the talent that they have at their disposal. 
have invested billions in, in very intentional upskilling programs. AT&T retrained almost half of its, um, its workforce over, over a, a matter of years. It invested over a billion dollars. Good evidence that that improved its, um, its performance. So are you saying there that, that we're kind of, we are in the midst of a sea change here because clearly the OECD numbers show that we have not done very well on training and that indeed, I think one of the major reasons is that corporations will say, well, we don't necessarily get a return on investment. We may train people and they'll leave, they'll go elsewhere. That might be good for the economy as a whole, but it's not good for our, our business. And therefore we think it's more the responsibility of government. But but you're saying there's an attitude shift going on here. Is that right? Absolutely. And the evidence is pretty clear. I mean, Canada does not fare well globally on a number of metrics. Productivity is one of them. Innovation is another. And like it or not, the United States does outpace us in many of these areas. And I think there's pretty good evidence that that's partly a function of the structure of the economy but it also is tied to the fact that corporations in the US invest more in, in training and partly because the, their public education system is so weak, frankly, they take far more responsibility. I would say in Canada, corporations rely very heavily on public institutions, but I, as I said in the last session, we, we need to shift the thinking at um, post-secondary institutions. We need to build better collaboration so people aren't training people for jobs that don't exist. So I, coming back to what Pedro said, I don't think it's an either or. I think we talk a lot about the skills and employment system in Canada. We talk a lot about the education system. In fact, we have no systems. We have a lot of fragmentation. We have a lot of duplication, we have a lot of inefficiency. And that's where I think the work of Future Skills, the Future Skills Center is really focusing now is how do we develop systems that bring together the key stakeholders and players where everybody is doing their part, but we really are doing a better job of bridging supply and demand, both for entry-level employees, but also once, um, once they get into corporations. And technology which people talk a lot about as, as part of the problem and, and the increased potential for disruption and the hysteria in the echo chamber around uh, robots, not just uh, taking our jobs, but um, stealing our children as well. And yet the, there's lots of evidence to suggest that technology is definitely creating disruption, but it can be a really important part of the solution. And thinking about new models and new approaches and new platforms and reducing fragmentation so we have more organizations working together rather than uh, reinventing the wheel, I think is part of developing a, a coherent, high-functioning training and employment ecosystem in Canada. And we have the tools to do it. And one of the reasons the U.S., sorry, but one of the reasons the U.S., can't, in my view, get as much traction as, as we have is because of the fragmentation, because of the huge discrepancies between public and private institutions and the cost of post-secondary and so on and so on and so forth. We have the, the makings of an incredibly 
robust and powerful training and employment um, system that really could, could, if we got it working a bit better, uh, take us into uh, a leadership role in the world. I mean, right now we have one of the highest rates of post-secondary graduation, but we are not seeing it translating into productivity, innovation, and global domination. Well, Pedro, Pedro, pick up on that for a second, because first off, I think uh, Canadians who always think that we do better than the United States would be surprised that perhaps our investments uh, at a corporate level in, uh, in human capital are higher, although Wendy says that may be a necessity also of, of their structure. So do we have the right structures in place in Canada, and, and are we developing a culture of lifelong learning and expression that I have heard for my long life? But is that actually really happening? How, how can we ensure that the rubber hits the road on, on that great concept uh, and use the opportunity that we, have, uh, that we have in front of us to look for purposeful but incremental changes that will widen the circle of adopters among, uh, among employers? One of those places is in advanced manufacturing, where, there, where there's a lot of shifts going on. Even within the industry of advanced manufacturing, of course, there are parts of the industry that are on the decline, others that are, have a lot of opportunity. And uh, diagnosing where it is that uh, training, uh, upskilling can really make a difference and bring ROI and not just approaching in a generic way could be quite powerful, right? In understanding that this is not one size fits all, it actually needs to solve business problems. And, and one, of the, one of the challenges in advanced manufacturing is that the C-suite knows that winning when it comes to advanced manufacturing in Canada means that you got to figure out how AI and automation are really going to leverage your business model. So the C-suite may get that, but once it gets to middle management in terms of implementation, it's um, what, I, what I've certainly heard from the industry is that not all of the skills are there to be able to turn those concepts, right, around what we need to do from a business model into the actual driving and implementation as part of the business. And so if you're going to take, um, you know, limited bandwidth in terms of where are you going to put your dollars, where are you going to partner with post-secondary education institutions, maybe try it micro-credentialing, maybe bring in some government support, focus in on which part of transformation of your business is going to bring you greatest ROI and where the investment is going to, is going to last. I mean, the, 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 um, the upside of that too is that if you are in a race and to your earlier point, Ed, investing in your workforce now and giving them the skills that they can apply for a successful career in a business that's moving really, really quickly will perhaps lower the chances that you're going to jump and go somewhere else. But it's a matter of finding where those opportunities are. And they're, they're throughout the economy, even within healthcare, for example. The adoption of AI, we know that AI is increasingly capable of making diagnostic decisions in all kinds of areas, but it comes with, it comes with real challenges as well, right? Around knowing how to use it, making the right decisions, uh, feeling comfortable within that model, right? Understanding the ethics and values piece that's embedded in that. Primary frontline, primary healthcare workforce is not really equipped yet to be able to adopt those technologies, yet it's going to be pretty fundamental in terms of the sustainability of our model moving forward. So if you have limited bandwidth within healthcare, right, you have to figure out how are you going to really drive a learning agenda around your workforce. That space, which is very much forward-looking and which is going to help your business model over the long haul, may be where, uh, where you invest. So just um, 
at the same time that I am all for sort of the, the broader principle of driving toward a learning nation, of ensuring that we get to 100% of employers that are investing in education, I think that there's also a purposeful incremental uh, journey there to look at where the greatest opportunities are that really build momentum and show ROI. Okay, I want to go, let's go down the road for a moment of both different types of employers and different types of employees. We'll start with employers and understand the particular sectoral challenges because if there's anything that I think you guys are about and we should all be about, it's the granularity that uh, one size doesn't fit all in terms of analysis of what's going on or policies or programs uh, that, that will be required. So Future Skills Center has just issued a, a new call recently for proposals for how to better deal with and I think you made very specific reference to the hospitality sector, the healthcare sector, which you were just talking about a moment ago, and technology industries. So maybe you could just uh, tell us why though. What are the particular challenges those industries need to mitigate? What are the new opportunities that they, uh, that they have that can be leveraged to the advantage of a future workforce? Uh, why those three in this given proposal? I think those were those were just examples, and I think that the challenges and opportunities are, of course, much broader. What we're trying to do is really three things through our call. Number one is it, it is to mitigate uh, particular challenges that are facing in industries that are seeing mass displacement, and hospitality is certainly one. Retail is the other, and we can talk about that a bit. Yeah, the, 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 these are two of the hardest hit industries from uh, from COVID nineteen. So obviously, this is a, a post COVID lens as well that you're looking through, right? Yeah, of course. But, but we, we're also seeing there are emerging opportunities. And you talk, to, uh, you talk to employers and sectors in biotech, for example, and even in, within manufacturing, as hard of a time as many parts of manufacturing are having, there are also openings and we need to look at those. The, the tougher conversation, uh, but one that we're hoping to also get to, is the bridge between industries that are on the decline and industries that are on the ascent. And how is it that we can move uh, to a conversation beyond occupations to a conversation around skills because a lot of skills will be transferable right and how is it that we ensure that um we're we're actually providing the right pathways for people to move from where they are now to where they're going to need to be six months and two years down the road and that kind of sort of cross industry cross sector conversation much more focused on uh, on skills and building those bridges is uh, is a tough one right? Because nobody wants to lose their workforce. Nobody wants to, uh, to see a decline in terms of all the investments that have been made in very skilled people. But it's a conversation that we need to have and that we need to approach. We're also, in terms of how is it that we leverage technology within the field of retail, a very live conversation about how we build a resilient supply chain. We think a lot about, for example, moving from bricks and mortar model to more of a, a digital model. But there's a whole wraparound of skills that needs to be there in order for that model for that model to work, right? It's not simply about putting up a website. <laughs> you got to be able to do the right kind of analytics in the background. You got to figure out how your marketing strategy will be impacted. You can leverage uh, even uh, the products that you are going to have on your web store with the right kind of tools. But it's more than just creating a website. There's there's a whole um, infrastructure behind it with skills that are necessary that are going to help you succeed over the medium to long term. And we don't, we don't really have those models at, at, at the moment. 
And yeah, I, I, I think that's a very important and perceptive point of view. I say this as someone who has uh, spent a good part of my career in in digital, in in the news business, and trying to be a reformist and introducing digital. And was the founding editor of GlobalMail.com, so I've been at this since uh, since the late '90s. And one of the you know classic mistakes that's made here is that you just throw your old business model online and your old skill sets online. And, uh, you know, the, the, the great maker of that mistake perhaps was Encyclopedia Britannica that thought, okay, we'll knock Wikipedia right out of the ballpark with our uh, superior knowledge on our old model. So that doesn't work. Having said that it doesn't work, how do we ensure that those digital skills are in place to relate to a new economy, a new society, a new way in which people are connecting with one another? So, really good question. Thank you for asking it. It's my life's work. One of the, one of the things that we have to really, in my view, uh, understand is what digital skills are. And often people equate digital skills with science, technology, engineering, and math. I've worked for many years in the tech sector, and of course we need computer scientists, of course we need engineers. But when you're talking about digital transformation, it's really important to understand what innovation is. Innovation is not making new tools and technologies. Innovation is doing things differently. And as we've talked about, when we look at what's, what it's taken to transform healthcare, uh, government, education in the, in the COVID context, the tools have been there for a very, very long time but they have not been used. And so if you really want to drive digital transformation, you know, as you said, Ed, you have to understand that you're not just looking at automating things that you've, you currently have, are doing. You need to think about new business models. What that requires is really deep and nuanced understanding of corporate strategy and what the, what the environment is and what you're trying to accomplish. It requires people who understand business process re-engineering. So they're not just looking at um, a hammer running around searching for nails, that they're actually analyzing what the organization is trying to accomplish, how it's going to do it, and who's required. The processes around user experience, user-driven methods, which we've known about for more than 30 years. I worked on Don Tapscott's book, I think it was 1995, called The Digital Economy. And I have it on my bookshelf, Wendy. Those, you can look up my name in the foreword. The, I will. But those skills, those skills are not just about building the technology. It's about using it intelligently to accomplish outcomes. And those are also digital skills. So when we talk about digital skills, we talk about basic digital literacy. You want your entire workforce to be able to use the internet intelligently, to be able to learn new applications as they become important. And of course, at the top of the pyramid, you do want those people with the deep technology skills who can build things and program, program applications. Although ironically, as we're We've been uh, driving coding earlier and earlier in, in the life cycle. So some people are pay, playing coding algorithms to their unborn children. The fact is that the technology is advancing in such a way that you don't need coding skills to build systems anymore. 
For me, the sweet spot is that middle group of people who on the one hand understand what the organization is trying to accomplish and on the other understand technology tools and how to use them. And too often in our tendency to equate STEM with innovation and to equate STEM with digital skills, we've ignored that very important part of the pyramid. And those typically are the people who can drive digital transformation, people who have a deep understanding of the business and enough understanding of the technology to be able to ask people to develop the kinds of systems that we need. And why that's important, Ed, going back to some of the things we talked about earlier, is that opens up a lot of space for people in a variety of disciplines. We know that the big impediments to technology adoption have not been the absence of technology. It's been users willing to use them, organizations willing to invest in them, and policymakers providing frameworks and infrastructure. Well, I think I think Wendy, I think it's even worse than that. If I dare say, I think I think one of the great impediments is organizations sort of uh, tricking themselves into they're disrupting themselves, but their changes are so incremental. Hundred percent, and we know some very sad cases of of how that has happened. So you need you need that mindset which understands digital skills and digital transformation as a business issue. I think people fall into the technophiliacs who think technology will do everything we need and the technophobes who think we can keep doing the things we've always done and you need some some middle ground but you also need people with diverse perspectives on these issues because I've often said technology is too important to leave to the technologists you don't want the people who love the technology making the decisions about how it should be used. So you need more perspectives in order to draw transformation. And we need, I don't think we've talked enough about in this conversation, some of the issues facing small, medium enterprises, because small and medium are often lost, left out. A lot of the pundits who talk about skills and the, the CEOs who are, are talking about what's needed are coming from very large corporations, banks, IT companies, and so on. We often completely ignore small, medium enterprises, even though they account for more than 80% of the employment. Well, well, let's let's take that to Pedro for a second, because okay. you know one of the uh, characteristics of the Canadian economy and the structure of the Canadian economy is the heavy presence of uh, of small, medium enterprises, which probably has to do with uh, with other factors as well, like proximity to the, to the United States and branch plant uh, companies and that. But Pedro. What are the what are those particular challenges of small medium enterprises, and how are you going about addressing those? Well, having the infrastructure and being able to pool resources to be able to invest on the back end of some of these solutions is certainly a challenge that we're looking at within retail, for example, and within hospitality as well. Our hospitality partnership actually recognizes that a lot of hospitality providers are SMEs that don't have sort of the uh, backbone infrastructure to think digitally or to think in a more sophisticated way about their digital assets, to connect to different uh, labor forces, have a very limited uh, training capacity, perhaps limited uh, connections as well to uh, PSEs that might help them with that agenda. 
so in, in some ways, what we need to do is, is, uh, is to create infrastructure for SMEs to, to actually have more scale in terms of their ability to keep up with all the changes that are happening around them, and also to connect with workers. And that work of capacity building through thinking more about intermediaries and some of the infrastructure that needs to be in place, I think is going to be key moving forward. I should say, though, as part of this uh, technology discussion, I'm with Wendy, of course, and that technology, of course, is an absolutely essential tool as we move forward. But when you look at the, the fundamental shift that's happening, for example, in Alberta's economy around oil and gas, and we think about skills, like we talk a lot about technology, but that's not the only thing that it's about, right? Over, over in the oil and gas industry in Alberta, it's about thinking about jobs that have perhaps been tied to extraction to now think about transferable sectors, right? That are not that far away from the job that you were doing before, but thinking about things like petrochemicals, clean tech, renewables, industrial construction, and what are the pathways to reskilling, to the redeployment of some of those skills? Yeah, some of that has to do with technology, but the conversation on skills is much broader than that. And um, but 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 even within that industry, there are transfers of skills going on, and and it's upgrading into more technology skills. I mean, a geologist does not do what a geologist used to do, and frankly, if you're working drilling wells, you're not doing what you were doing uh, five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago. So even even within that, obviously, the skills evolution is is profound. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're doing some great work with Energy Safety Canada to, uh, to try and imagine what those scenarios might be and, and to actually provide tools for workers on the ground to not just understand, like, this is practically what you need to do in terms of, of your skills, but also here are the places somewhere else in Alberta or in Saskatchewan or in BC where some of the demand is, uh, is on the rise and, and try to provide a, a picture which is not just about the piece of paper or the or the certificate that you that you have in your inbox but it's also about what is your like what can your life look like where might you go and live and i think that thinking about skills pathways in a more comprehensive way actually gives people more choices and gives them more confidence about making decisions wendy i want to uh, go back to what you were saying about digital a few minutes ago and I want to sort of see if there's a connection here that maybe there doesn't exist but obviously a lot of the work that that has been done that that both of your organizations have done that our organization is working on with you has to do with Canadians with disabilities one of our skills next papers says to eliminate barriers to employment for people with disabilities employers policymakers healthcare workers educators architects and engineers must be educated to develop and i quote disability confidence which you talk about is the knowledge to know that there's inclusive and accessible work environments. As digitalization of the economy and, and the virtual world in which we're living increasingly and that has accelerated a lot through the pandemic come hold, does that create a, a new level of opportunity for, uh, for people with disabilities? Massively. And in fact, if you look at that same paper, which was written before the pandemic, when they talk about accommodations and what people with disabilities need in order to more effectively engage in the workforce, what are some of the things? Flexible work hours, the ability to work at home, and, and assistive technologies. COVID has made work at home and flexible hours kind of a de facto reality of, of most organizations now. So I think it's created 
massive opportunity in, in how we think about uh, different forms of work. At the same time, I would argue that we have to pay a lot of attention to inclusive design. I mean, one of the big problems with the, the rapid movement to Zoom was people who uh, are hearing impaired but can read lips can function much better, frankly, than they did in the telephone world. But people who are visually impaired were missing we're missing things like uh, a translation and closed captioning and, and so on. And so in the early stages of, of Zoom, we were actually creating a more level playing field for people who were hearing impaired potentially, but if they could read lips, but not for those who couldn't. So, so there's some things, things like that. I mean, we've worked with some amazing companies like eSight which has a, a, a $15,000 piece of technology that actually can allow many people to see, uh, depending on the nature of their visual impairment. $15,000 to me to get somebody into the workplace where they don't have to be tethered to a computer with a particular features is amazing. And yet they have faced massive barriers to deploying that technology. They haven't been able to get it approved or certified for, for government support and so on. To me, if you can spend $15,000 and create an opportunity for someone to become gainfully employed, you've changed your lives, but you've also generated a whole pool of taxes. These very weird kinds of calculus that I don't think we're making correctly as a society I want to stick with this thing for a second about a classic distributional challenge that we have, which is that we don't take a whole of society uh, approach. So we know that this is good for the commons, but who's going to pay? But it's good for the employer as well. I work with companies that spend $15,000 for a finder's fee to get an employee. If you can take someone, spend that money, and you've got the employee, like, why wouldn't you? Why can't they see that? Because I would argue the same things that impede innovation on multiple levels. We, we do things a certain way. We've done them this way for so long that we seem incapable of thinking about new ways to do things. And that's why the disruption that COVID has created, in my view, creates space for thinking about things that are, that are different. We used to outsource huge tranches of IT work to emerging economies because it was cheaper. In the post-COVID world, we can be outsourcing all kinds of things to people who wouldn't otherwise have access. The other piece that's really important for persons with disabilities, and I think it's a failure of post-secondary institutions, is, as I mentioned, people with uh, severe disabilities who graduate from university have worse employment outcomes than high school dropouts. And what that tells me is that there's something really wrong. And I think that a lot of the parts of the university which engage with employers, the placement, the co-op offices, and so on, aren't connected to the offices that support people with disabilities. And as a result, they finish their first four years of university. They typically haven't been part of those internships, those co-op placements, those other opportunities that build networks and connections, and then they're just dropped. And I think post-secondary institutions working with employers 
working with third party organizations like Specialist Stern and so on, again, need to build bridges. And it, it brings me back, and I think Pedro's comments tie to this as well, taking a systems approach. If we think about, if we think about these issues less from the point of view of an individual job seeker in an individual company or a group of employees at an individual company, and we start to try to think about how we can make the system work better so that when people are unemployed in one part, they have easy transitions to other parts. When we think about developing skills, I, I'm completely supportive of a focus on very particular essential skills and professional skills. But one of the most important skills that we don't do, in my view, a good enough job of is building resilience and ad adaptation and entrepreneurial skills and innovative approaches so that we can adapt quickly when things change. And that's one of the most certain things in the skills world is change. And we can't pretend that we can predict the future. We know it will be different. And the, the most important thing I think we can do for Canadians is build systems and people that can adapt, adjust, retool, and redeploy quickly. And that creates opportunities for companies, it creates opportunities for, for job seekers, and it creates, takes the burden off the public sector. Okay, Pedro, I'm gonna finish up with one last and big question, I think, so, which is youth, which is around youth. And so much of the job damage that we've seen through this crisis has has landed on youth in a disproportionate way and even more so i guess if you look at it through an intersectional lens as well that worries me because uh what we saw in the 2008 uh, to 2009 great recession is the people who didn't get their feet firmly on the ladder in a way that they might have uh, paid a price for a decade and now they've got hit by this. So I wonder to what extent is that in your mandate and you're looking at it because, and I wonder to what extent has the ground shifted to some extent from a mid-career problem when we had a tight labor market to an entry-level problem as well? Yeah, that's a, it's obviously a, um, a massive challenge that continues, um, especially the more historically disadvantaged you are. And I think that spectrum just continues to expand. So. We're looking at areas where hopefully economic growth will continue and where that sort of demand supply gap will, will be there. Uh, we're working with the University College of the North, for example, looking at some of the challenges around uh, hydroelectric infrastructure, IT jobs, and how is it that we can connect uh, Indigenous populations to some of those opportunities in a way that's really win-win that recognizes that people aren't just going to move from the south to the north to fill those jobs. There's 3,000 of them ready to be taken, uh, but that if we are going to actually um, uh, engage indigenous populations in the north, it can't be just about the training, it has to be about recognizing uh, other components uh, in terms of the journey. But, I'll, but I'll, I'll give you one more example, very practical, of a public policy decision we could make uh, that would ensure that uh, young people would not be left behind from coast to coast to coast. And that's the reality that public money can actually think long term and infrastructure projects tend to take a long time. And I think that as we are about to hit another recovery, 
we're probably going to see that infrastructure is going to remain front and center in terms of public investments to keep the economy going. At some point in that equation, we're going to see that there's going to be a supply-demand mismatch. And how do we begin to plan now to ensure that we have the workforce that's required to build the stuff that our economy needs, be it on the construction side, but also on the professional, administrative, and tech side? And a lot of, a lot of young people, particularly disadvantaged young people, are going to be left out of those careers unless we very intentionally reach into uh, marginalized communities, provide them with pathways into uh, careers in, apprentice, in apprenticeships, into professional administrative and tech jobs. And we actually bake that into publicly funded infrastructure projects that will be delivered by the private sector. And think about it as a win-win-win. How is it that we create real employment opportunities for young people who will otherwise be shut out, provide the right wraparound supports to make sure that they will be providing value to the employer and anticipate that we are going to get through this, right? And that at some point, we're going to return to the reality that we're going to have a shortage of workers when it comes to infrastructure builds. So let's anticipate, right, that this is going to be a pressure that is going to come back and that there are things that we could do right now that will benefit young people, that will benefit communities, and that will benefit the industry that will allow us to just get going uh, and build momentum through. Well, I think that's a good a good place uh, for us to uh, to wrap it up. I mean, certainly we're at the point now where we are in different parts of the country reopening the economy, and we're also now at the point uh, as the shock of the emergency lessens somewhat, where we're beginning to think about what will the rebuild of this economy look like after we reopen it. Wendy spoke, I think, in in our first conversation about supply chains. I know at the Public Policy Forum, we have a project called Rebuild Canada. And in Rebuild Canada, we're sort of saying, okay, what issues have arisen entirely that weren't on our agenda in our sight lines beforehand? And what issues, like the future of work, has the trajectory of them changed markedly so that in both cases we need to think anew about what we're going to look like and what policy is going to look like six months down the road, two years down the road, uh, five years down the road. So I think that's um, a great place to end um, two great conversations. And I want to thank you both, Wendy and Pedro, for joining us on Policy Speaking and agreeing to join us again on Policy Speaking. I think we have covered an awful an awful lot of territory, but I think that we'll be back again in future to continue doing that, and we'll be working on our our skills next uh, project with you. I think we'll all be turning our attention more towards what the post pandemic uh, future of work uh, looks like and how it's been affected. And we just covered a lot of that ground today and and a lot of great insight. So again, thank you to the Diversity Institute. Thank you to the Future Skills Center. Thank you, both of you, for the work that you do and uh, the insights that you've imparted. And I hope you'll join us again at some point. Thank you. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. All right. So that is a wrap on this edition of our podcast, Policy Speaking. I want to Thank also my colleagues at the Public Policy Forum and as well to our distribution partner, National News Watch. If you enjoyed this episode, let us know on Twitter at ppforumca. If you enjoyed this particular episode, you may want to go back and listen to the first part of it as well. And with that, I say uh, goodbye. I am Edward Greenspawn, and this has been Policy Speaking.